Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our fourth episode on the Fosbrader Saga, the Saga of the Sworn Brothers. Welcome back. And what with one thing and another, it's also nearly the end of summer. Uh, yeah, we were supposed to finish this saga during summer, but, you know. We were, yeah. Uh, I was also supposed to paint the porch and clean out the shed this summer. <laughs> plans plans exist to be sacrificed, Andy. That is a, it's a point of view that I subscribe to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, so having left our plans on the bloody altar, uh, sacrifice to uh, <laughs> name your god, uh, do we uh, know when we are actually going to finish this saga? Well, it's not going to be today. Well, no. I, I mean, I know that. Uh, it's probably not going to be the next episode either, but maybe yeah, it agreed. will be. Who knows? Uh, somehow this saga has turned into a six-episode monster. Six or seven. Let's not hem ourselves Oof. in. We could start doing one chapter an episode. <laughs> Plans for the plan, God, Andy. Plans uh-huh. for the plan, God. Uh, so before we can make any progress today, we do need to tie our last two episodes together. Remember, we had our uh, protagonists separated yes. in a two-part story. We mercifully didn't do what we're about to do yeah. last time, and exactly. now we have to do it. Uh, so now we have to tie it all back together and explain what happened. Last times on Saga Thing. Our sworn brothers, Thorgir and Thorbot, ended their tumultuous partnership over an awkward bit of small talk about which of them would win in a fight. Thorbot went home to his father's farm, while Thorgir went over the horizon seeking his fortune here, there, and everywhere. After committing a number of embarrassing murders in Iceland, Thorgeir moved on to Norway, where he joined the court of King Olaf. Olaf knows how to use his new chum, and sends Thorgeir straight back to Iceland, where he kills a man on Olaf's behalf. He also befriends a shifty carpenter named Vaglag. Thormod, still in Iceland, was growing bored with the local nightlife until he met Thordis, the daughter of a local sorceress named Grima. Grima suspected Thormod of being a shiftless cad, because, well, he is. But Grima's a go-getter type, and she sent a yarn-wrapped fighter named Kolbak after Thormod to show him what for. Kolbak injures Thormod's arm so badly that Thormod will be fighting Southpaw from now on. Meanwhile, Thorgeir's new friend Veglag turns out to have the stickiest of fingers, and he's caught stealing in the home of Thorgeir's cousins, mainly because he's really bad at it. Thorgeir and Veglag leave under a dark cloud, looking for somewhere to spend the winter. Thormod's adventures take a turn when he makes time with another woman, Thorbjörg Kolbrow, and writes poems in praise of her. But when he returns to visiting Thornis, he denies knowing Kolbrow, and claims the poems are meant for her. Kolbrow then visits him in a dream that night, and threatens to burst his eyeballs if he doesn't admit what he's done. Thormod is forced to admit publicly about his two-timing ways, and is deeply embarrassed by the whole affair. That same winter, Thorgeir shows up at Thormod's door, after a decade apart, looking to patch things up with his old crony. The pair are together again, but the echoes of their rupture still haunt them. Can the Sworn Brothers mend their fences before all the men and women they've offended come looking for revenge? Find out this time, as we cover Force Brother Saga, chapters 13 to 18. So, we talked about that strained relationship between Thormod and Thorger, and how their relationship really is a marriage of opposites. Uh, these are blood brothers with a lot of sibling rivalry. Oh, that's cute. How long have you been uh, saving that one up? 
Yeah, one, two episodes tops. Anyway, my point mm. is that even though their own saga focuses mainly on their estrangement and the difficulties in their friendship, that friendship is still the center of the saga. And it's a depiction of homosocial bonding that, at its best, is treated as the sine qua non of relationships in the sagas. Ooh, Latin. You've been studying, John. <laughs> I like my, it. My, I like my, it. My, my wife's a classical language teacher. It rubs off. Does it now? Well, the point is still valid. Um, and I might push back a bit on the idea that male friendship is the only kind of relationship that gets celebrated in the sagas. But No, yeah, I don't mean to say it's the only kind. Just the kind that's at the center of the stories most frequently. Certainly. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Uh, even the warrior poet sagas sometimes lose sight of romantic love in favor of male friendships. Like, uh, remember, Alfred, Troublesome Poet, and King Olaf. Best oh, exactly. Bros. Best bros forever. Uh, yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, Gareth Lloyd Evans talks about the homosocial economy of friendship and honor. Uh, and that's definitely a vital part of the successful performance of masculinity in this culture, certainly mm-hmm. in the sagas. A man who knows how to have friends and how to treat them is likely to have a good and manly reputation. But these guys are more like a dysfunctional version of that dynamic. Um, Mm -hmm. I think they're constructed in that way intentionally. Their friendship defines them, but it's also kind of a disaster. Oh, absolutely. But, But they're a team disaster. They're linked together in the imagination of saga writers and audiences. And we know that partly because they're recognized as a duo elsewhere in the sagas. Yeah, I mean, that definitely checks out, but... Even though they're back in contact, Thormod and Thorgir haven't forgotten the strain that ended their active partnership, so we've mostly been getting the rivalry part of the friendship. The sibling part, well, that's featured elsewhere. Right, but we'll get a chance to bring in one of those stories today. Oh no, we're not passing up a segue like that. Let's go. Part 13. A Man Who Fears Nothing. So... Now that they've been reunited, Thorger and Thormod spend a bit of time together that winter before parting ways again in the spring. Not the whole time. They, they no. really don't trust themselves around each other. But it's enough time, and their relationship is at a calm point now. The winter passes peacefully, more or less. Yeah, more or less. How calmly the time passes depends a lot on which stories we choose to read. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's time, Andy. Time <laughs> for another plunge into the uncanny and eerie waters of Manuscript Studies. Uh, so, I- I'm going to be happy when that's done, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's just more, every time you say that, it's just more work for me. Extra Foley work for you? We have, to, we, have to, we have to pay whoever has the copyright on Thunder? Yeah, right. Uh, no, we're, we're going back to the Flat Air book manuscript this time, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because Thorger ends up hanging off a cliff clinging to an herb bush in that one, which is kind of fun. Yeah, we are. Uh, but first, we're going to stop by Arna Magnaean Manuscript 551A. Oh, well, pull up a chair and get a fresh pint, everyone. It's about to get extra manuscripty in here. How fun. I mean, look, I appreciate a beer and a place to sit as much as the next guy. But this isn't a complicated thing. It's just that before we can appreciate the story about Thorier dangling from a cliff, we should take a minute to cover a story that we should have talked about a few years ago. Ah, a few years ago. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is going to be uh, Grettir's saga, isn't it? Exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. The brothers have an extended cameo in the saga of Grettir Asmundersen. Yeah, okay, so didn't we... I I was under the impression as I was reading this that we we must have talked about this when we did Grettir's saga. (laughs) No, (laughs) not at all. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, even if we had, that was years ago. 
people have other things to do than to remember minutia from this podcast. Difficult as oh, that really? may be to believe. Uh, but no, we actually didn't cover this at all when we did Greta's Saga. Wow. It was okay. uh, back when we were, yeah, we we're back then we were still trying to keep from spending four to six months on a single saga. Oh, we were so young. Yeah, it was a more innocent time. Wasn't it? So we, uh, we skipped over some of Greta's interactions with people who only show up for a single chapter. And I think we kind of mm-hmm. hand waved it at the time. Oh, we yada yada the Sworn Brothers. Essentially, yeah. Well, I mean, Greta's saga does get a bit repetitive, so uh, I can see why we would do that. But maybe a bit short-sighted given we were going to do the Sworn Brothers saga. I think we talked about it off mic at the time, and we figured we'd bring it up now uh, when we covered this saga. Not realizing just how leisurely our progress was going to be. This is many, many years and more gray hairs. (laughs) From then. Uh, no matter. No matter. It may have taken a few mm-hmm. extra years, but the moments arrived, Andy. Do you uh, do you have your copy of Greta's Saga around somewhere? Uh, I do. Yeah, just a second. Uh, I keep it right here. It's right by my heart. Oh, such a romantic. No, actually, it's on the shelf. Just uh, vamp for a minute. I'll get it. Well, okay. So the point here is that in a throwaway chapter of Greta's Saga, Greta spends some time with Thorger and Thormod at a farm belonging to a man named Thorgils. Mm-hmm. And since it's a short chapter and full of little incidents, I think we're just going to let the author of the saga tell us that story. Okay. So, Andy, do you have your book? This is going to be chapter 50. I have my book right here. And I'm flipping open to chapter 50. I'm on 50. There you are. Page 112 in my book. Chapter mm-hmm. 50. What do you want me to do? Did you say you're going to read the whole thing? <laughs> I'm looking at the... It's kind of long. Well, we are, yeah. So put a log on the fire because this is going to be a tale. Oh, Jesus. <clears throat> Greta Asmundersen arrived at Rekjahaler just before winter nights and asked Thorgils for winter lodging. This is uh, Thorgils Arason, by the way. Uh, Thorgils of Thorgils and Elugi fame, the cousin of Thorgir. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Hmm. Okay, so Thorgils replied that he was welcome to food, but this is not a particularly comfortable place to stay. Well, I'm not the choosy sort. Well, there's another problem. There are two unruly men staying here at present. The sworn brothers, Thorgair and Thormod. I don't know how you'll get on together, but I always let them stay here for as long as they like. You can stay here too if you want, but none of you are allowed to pick fights with each other. Well, I'm, not, I'm, not looking, I'm not looking to start trouble with anyone, especially if it's my host's wish that I behave. This is Gretir at his most reasonable. Well, it's, it's easy to forget that Gretter was actually a pretty chill guy most of the time. I mean, you know, when he wasn't flaying horses or killing people. Or, or wrestling Hall Revenants. Sure, or that. Uh, so, on with our tale. Soon after that, the Sworn Brothers returned to the farm. There was immediate friction between Gretter and Thorgir, but Thormod got on well with him. Thorgils laid the same restriction on them as he had on Gretter. And all of them held Thorgils in such esteem that no one said a word out of place to each other, even though they were not the sort to see eye to eye with one another. And the first part of the winter passed in this way. So we have Gretter Ausmundersen and Thorgard Halverson cooped up together for the winter, and they are forbidden from misbehaving. Uh, yeah. No running around through the house with a pickle in your mouth? None of that. <laughs> Nothing. It's it, it's a powder keg of bad personality dynamite. It's, uh, I I have about four objections to that analogy, but essentially yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, everything's calm until one day when the sworn brothers take a small boat out to an island to collect an ox belonging to Thorgils. 
They ask for one man to go with them, and Gretter volunteers. Yeah, it says that the three of them take a ten-man boat out to the island. Well, I mean, they're big boys, Andy, and they do need room for that ox, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, catching the ox is no problem, but when it comes time to get the ox onto the boat, they have some difficulty. There's a storm rising, and the winds and waves are buffeting the boat about. Gretter says, Do you want the job of carrying the ox on the boat, or of holding the boat steady? And Thorgir says, You hold the boat. We've got the ox. Right, so Gretter jumps out of the boat into water up to his shoulders, but instead of bringing the boat in to shore, he just holds it so firmly that it can't move an inch. Now, this is clearly a bit of a challenge to the brothers, and they're up to it. It's fun. And when they saw that, Thorgir took hold of the rear of the ox, and Thormod took the front. And they lifted it and carried it out onto the boat and put it down safely. Meanwhile, the storm is getting worse, and they're rowing right into the wind on the way back. The text says, Thormod rowed at the prow. Thorgir was amidship, and Gretter sat at the stern. Then the seas and the wind grew worse. They found themselves in a gale, and their progress slowed. And Thorgir says, I believe the stern is holding us back. The stern will keep up if there are decent rowers in front. (laughs) Nothing like a little rowboat smack talk in the middle of a hurricane. (laughs) In response to uh, Gretter's criticism, Thorgir pulls on the oars so hard that the oar locks on both sides break. Gretter, you row a bit harder. I'll fix the oar locks. Right, and Gretter responds to that by rowing so hard that he snaps both of his oars. (laughs) At which point... Thormod, who would really rather not die as collateral damage in this ridiculous pissing contest, says, Look, you ought to both row more gently and stop breaking things. (laughs) And he barely avoids adding, you idiots, right? (laughs) But uh, Gretter's not done yet. He grabbed two wooden shafts that were in the boat, punched a couple of holes in the sides of the boat, and rowed so furiously that every beam in the ship began to crack under the strain. The boat ends up skipping across the waves, but it makes it back to the mainland in one piece. Or at least most of one piece, minus the parts he punched out of it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, The Swarm Brothers took on the job of beaching the boat, which they do by lifting it, still half full of seawater and caked in ice, and they carry it ashore. And meanwhile, Gretter led the ox, but it was tired and fat and suddenly stops walking. The brothers left him there with the ox and and went home to Thorgil's farm, since none of them were inclined to help the others with the task. It's just passive-aggressive Vikings. Absolutely. They hate to see it. Uh, so when Thorgils hears about the brothers leaving Gretter behind, he sends some men to help. When the men got as far as Hylasaller, they saw Gretter walking toward them with the ox on his back. Everyone was astonished what Gretter was capable of. But Thorgir was especially jealous of Gretter's strength. Ooh. Well, fortunately, it's not as if Thorgir makes bad decisions when he's annoyed. I think everything should... Work. Ah, I, I see I see you've anticipated the narrative masterfully. <laughs> well, I mean, it's right here. It's a, So shortly after <laughs> Yule, uh, you know, Gretir goes off by himself for a soak in Thorgil's hot spring pool. And Thorgir says, Thormod, let's go follow Gretir and see how he reacts if... If I jump on him when he leaves the pool. (laughs) I don't like that idea, and he won't treat you kindly for trying it either. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. And (laughs) he went down the slope holding his axe high. (laughs) He's 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 carrying his axe. Oh, yeah. To go jump to go jump on Greta as Munderson. Well, you don't do it barehanded. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, Greta's just trying to have a relaxing dip in the hot tub. 
Yeah. So it's a very bad idea. Um, yes. But this is Greater Saga, so it's not surprising if Thorgir is a bit more of a caricature than usual. Well, I mean, even at the best of times in his own saga, Thorgir is not the introspective type. <laughs> no. The uh, the thought is father to the deed, as it were. Mm-hmm, something like that. So just as Grettir is drying off and getting ready to head back to the farmhouse, Thorgir comes bopping down the path, axe in hand. He says, Hey, is it true, Grettir, that you have said that you would never run from a man on his own? Well, I'm not sure about that, but I've never seen a need to run very far from you. So then Thorgir raised his axe and swung. Grettir ducked mm. the blow, tackled Thorgir, and brought him down hard. Thorgir then called out to Thormod, You gonna stand around watching while this madman flattens me? It s- says the guy with an axe attacking a man in his post-swim bathrobe. <laughs> Again, Thorgir's <laughs> never really relied on rational argument, has he? Uh, uh, so Thormod doesn't like any of this at all, but, you know, this is his foster brother. So he charges in and tries to pull a Grettir off Thorgir, but mm-hmm. he can't budge him. So... He drew his short sword, but just at that moment, Thorgils came charging down the path and shouted at the brothers to stop tackling Gretter. <laughs> they did as he said and passed the whole thing off as a joke. <laughs> That's so funny. What a great episode. Why didn't we yeah, talk about this at the time? It's outlaw humor. <laughs> oh, it's good. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a bit slapstick for our refined tastes, Andy. Uh, well, the remarkable thing is that Gretter go, goes along with this whole thing. that He, he plays it well, off as a joke. Yeah, I... I would say Gretter was always a stickler for obeying the wishes of his host. Hmm. Right? This isn't Ale Scott Grimson puking all over his host or gouging a man's eye out in his own bed. Thorgils Arison is Gretter's host and friend, and Thorgir is a fellow guest. Yeah, that said, it's probably best that they all split up in the spring and don't run into each other again. I think uh, yeah. good for everyone involved. Uh-huh. Uh, and later, when Gretter is asked about the food and lodging at Thorgils' house, he just says, Well... When I was there, the best part of the meals was that I was there to eat them. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not the company. So <laughs> he extends his politeness to not mentioning the time that a fellow guest tried to kill him, I guess. Right. Or, I mean, or he's pretending that Thorger is too far beneath his notice to bother mentioning. Mm, I, that sounds about right to me, but uh, either way, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, incidentally, and this brings us back to False Proto Saga, Thorgil's Arison actually gains a fair amount of honor for all this. Yeah, there's a line of his that appears in both Gretir's saga and in the Fosbrother saga. Uh, the following year at the Althing, Skapti Lawspeaker seeks Thorgils out, uh, and he asks if the rumors are true about Gretir and Thorgir and Thormod, all spending a winter at his home without anyone getting killed. A pretty remarkable achievement. Yep. And, and Thorgils confirms it, and Skapti says, That is... Oh, this is Skapti. I know how he speaks. That is a mark of great leadership in you. Oh, stop it. I thought that Your jealousy and pettiness knows no bounds. (laughs) Let me read. I'm the character. Let me read. That is a mark of great leadership in you. But what did you make of their characters? Aren't they the bravest men of Iceland? Men who don't know the meaning of fear? Hmm? Thank you, Terry Jones. Uh... Thorgils thinks for a second and says, Not exactly. Though they are brave, Gretir is afraid of the dark, and Thormod fears God. But Thorgir is a man who fears nothing at all. Hmm. It's hard to say whether that's a compliment or not. I think it sounds like one, and it sets up this episode Mm -hmm. that we're about to embark upon really nicely. Uh, But comparing 
it with Thormov fearing God, I think, you know, maybe that puts a different spin on things. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who doesn't remember, Gretter did have a fear of the dark. Uh, it was a curse that was placed on him by the undead monster Glau. But uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that reference to Thormod fearing God. We haven't actually heard much about his religious feelings yet. Yeah, but Thorger, John, Thorger fears nothing. Uh-huh. And since the Gretter episode doesn't appear in Frostbrotto Saga, there's a different story in Flatair book that leads up to Thorgil's saying that Thorger was without fear. Mm-hmm. So this is the spring after the brothers have been reunited, and they're out one day gathering Angelica near a cliff that later gets the name Thorgir's Ledge. Hmm. That's portentous. Um, but, uh, Angelica, who is she and what is she doing out there? No, no. I had to look this up. It's a kind of wild celery plant. I, uh, I figured there from are, context. Yeah, yeah. There Not are a few celery, varieties. But a plant. Yeah, there are a few varieties of Angelica that have medicinal uses. And I tried really hard to find an argument that they're gathering supplies for a medicine for Thormod's arm, you know, the recovery from his oh, recent injuries. Okay. Uh, and I, I, this is the, one of those moments when we sort of peel up the curtain a little bit, you see that a lot of what scholars do is spend our time chasing leads that turn out to be absolutely nothing. Uh, and this is one of those times. Like detectives. We are de- detectives of the word and ideas. Yes, there you go. Let's go with that. I am I am a Sherlock of words. Uh, hey, you're more of a monk, but, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this, I spent like an hour, hour and a half on this, and it's absolutely not. Uh, there's no yeah. chance. Um, the This is more likely to be Sea Watch Angelica. Uh, which is mainly just an edible wild plant. I mean, you spent a lot of time digging. How much time did you spend? Yeah, I'd rather not discuss. I'd rather not discuss it. I'd, you said an hour, an hour and a half. Here. I'm not going to use exact numbers, though. It's let's just say an hour, an hour and a half was the beginning. Uh, while the brothers were picking <laughs> celery, <laughs> so the brothers are are picking this stuff, uh, and Thorger gets too close to the cliff edge, and the ground crumbles under his feet. He grabs one of the larger clumps of Angelica, and the roots hold but he's left dangling about 300 feet above a rocky coastline below. Mm. He doesn't dare to move, and so he just hangs there. And he refuses to make a sound or call out for help. Meanwhile, Thormod's further away from the cliff and assumes at first that Thorgir will be able to climb back up. When he realizes that's not happening, he calls out to Thorgir. When are you coming back up? Haven't you got enough Angelica yet? And Thorgir says calmly, Well... I reckon I'll have enough when I've uprooted this piece I'm holding. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> it's so good. I, You know, I really yeah. like your new voice for Thormod as a contrast to Thorgir. They become like this odd couple. That's really brilliant. <laughs> sort of uh, Oscar and Felix. If uh, if Oscar is a, a hard-bitten Western fella. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so Thormod now realizes what's going on, and he leaps to the cliff edge, grabbing Thorgir and pulling him back up just as the Angelica plant starts to give way. And according to this saga, to Fosbrotter saga, this incident is what leads Thorgils to say that Thorgir is the man who fears nothing at all. Not even death by herb. Well, he's a well-seasoned warrior, Andy. None of your sassafras. Come on now. No, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we have too much to do. We have too much Come to on. do, Andy, so we'd better get to work. Time to move on. <laughs> so embarrassing. That's, but it is it is sage advice, John. <laughs> Get it? Ugh. So this section has been about a chapter in a different saga, um, which was inspired by a variant chapter in an alternative manuscript tradition from this saga that we're reading now, right? So right. 
And the the whole thing is a textual aside from the main narrative in the first place. It's like a, a narrative matryoshka doll of digressions, isn't it? Well, fortunately, we now get a separate set of digressions to take your mind off the first set. I mean, first of all, we haven't even started this episode, really, if you think yeah. about it. <laughs> um, either this author needed an editor or we do. Or we do, yes. <laughs> I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Little from Column A, Little from Column B. Alright. Part 14. Interlude. Seal what? <laughs> oh, right. This. Yeah, this. Uh you want to explain a bit of this? I mean, where do you even start? So <laughs> this section is about Thorgir bouncing back and forth between Iceland and Norway. He does a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Remember, he is a prominent man in King Olaf's court in Norway now. And honestly, he should really just stay there. He's respected <laughs> there. Whereas in Iceland, he's widely despised as a, an outlaw. Uh, but, but, you know. But is it a good school district, Andy? Well, I mean, Thorgeir doesn't have any kids, so it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. He decided he wasn't interested in making a fool of himself by trying to woo a woman. Exactly. Look at what happened to Thormod. Yeah, Come exactly. Uh, now, he sort of remains aloof from any interactions with women. Yeah, and most interactions with men, honestly. Well, except for when he's killing them. So, Thorgeir sails out to Norway and rejoins the court of King Olaf. And he and his cousin, Ilugi, they both spend some time in Olaf's court. But the following year, Ilugi decides he needs to return to Iceland. And wisely, he refuses to take Thorgeir with him on the argument that Thorgeir is an outlaw, which he seems to keep forgetting. Mm-hmm. But Thorgeir then convinces King Olaf to let him go. And he takes passage on a different ship without his cousin's knowledge. Yeah, there, there is one thing about the king's permission. Uh, Olaf is hesitant at first to grant Thorgeir's request. And when he finally agrees... He adds, you will not be fortunate in all that you do. I give you leave to go to Iceland, but we will not meet again if we part now. I thank you for your permission, and I fully intend to return to you next summer. You may intend it, but what I say will come to pass. Hmm. Uh, Thorgeir should listen. Mm, He really should. Why start now? (laughs) So... After that, and knowing how questionable Thorgeir's ocean-going skills are, it would be a fitting end if Thorgeir just drowned somewhere in the North Atlantic. (laughs) Uh But he actually has a good trip, sailing with a skipper named Jokul, and he gets to Reykjavik, ahead of Ilugi, in fact, um, who took a more roundabout route. Right, so Ilugi's been doing some business, and he's playing another voyage the following summer. And before he gets home, he hires on a man named Gaut Slaterson to serve on his ship in the coming year. And that's our cue for a callback alert. Hmm. We don't have a callback alert, John. I, I'm not sure. That, that seems like an oversight. Uh, well, no matter. Uh, the point is alert. that we met Gout a couple of episodes ago. Did we? Yeah. I'm, I'm legitimately confused. I don't recall meeting Gout. This is going to be news to me as well as it is to our listeners. There you go. Uh, well, we did say at the time that the sort of pointless introduction of Gout in our first episode would pay off a couple of episodes later. And here we huh. are. And the What's payoff, the payoff honestly, it's not that impressive, uh, being uh-huh. honest. Uh, he's important now, but the fact that he appeared earlier was utterly irrelevant. So okay. uh, just remember that uh, uh, if you do remember his initial appearance, uh, Gout is a cousin of Thorgil's Marson, who Thorgil killed about a dozen years ago. Oh, I do know what's happening in this episode, mm-hmm. and I can tell you 
that that might come back to haunt Thorgeir just a little bit. Well, a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, this is the killing that he was actually outlawed for. I do exactly, remember yeah. that. Yeah. So okay. for the moment, we just need to keep in mind that Gout has a good reason to hate Thorgeir. And he's going to be on Elugi's ship in the spring. That and explains so much. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I was reading this uh, section. And I'm like, it's such a random episode, but it's right, not. Where did he come from? <laughs> it all links you know, together like this all beautiful foreshadowed. Chain. Mm. A beautiful chain, the first link of which you've utterly forgotten. I did. Uh, well, good thing you're here. So, that's <laughs> what I do. Um, I'm not. I'm not good looking, Andy, and I don't have money. But by gum, I can remember <laughs> the links in the chain. Good for you. So someone must like that. Uh, so Elugi has already hired Gout, uh, and now he has another really random encounter on his way home. Uh, one evening, he and his men meet a lone rider in a white cape who stops to talk with him. Mm-hmm. Andy, would you uh, would you care to don the white cape here? Oh, I I get to yes. Uh, okay. Hello, my name is Helgi. Of what family are you? Where do you live? Well, my family is spread all over, though mostly they live north of here. I've no permanent home nor the good fortune to have a permanent job, but I do do summer work, as I did this year. Most people recognize me, if only because of my nickname. Hmm? And what is that? Well, I'm known as Helgi Seal's Testicle. Or Seal's Ball. <laughs> There's a conversation stopper. I uh, I assume you're already planning a full discussion on this guy for the nickname review. I mean, I'm only human. I mean, seal's testicle? Unbelievable. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Well, I mean, there's there's an awkward pause in the conversation, as you might expect. And then Elugi mm-hmm. says politely, It's a highly unusual nickname, that. But I have heard you mentioned before. <laughs> uh, have we? We haven't heard of him, have we? No, no, we haven't. And he's really not relevant at all in this saga. Uh, This is sort of a random bit of folklore that's made its way into the surviving versions of this story. So these two have a conversation during which both men hint that Helgi is known for being prone to fear, but Mm. that his fast feet are an asset that keep him alive. And that reference to Helgi wearing a white cape is probably connected to his reputation for running from fights. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always wise to be cautious about color symbology because colors can mean so many different things. Uh, That's think true, about, yeah. Think about green, for instance. Right? Uh, envy, nature, renewal, greed, money in an American context, and so on. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one color has so many different references that it becomes dangerous to assign one meaning to it. Yeah, that's but true. But in, in this case, yeah, white can have associations with lack of courage. And in Helgi's case, that's the most likely connection. <laughs> and the seal's testicle thing has its own connotations, but we'll get to that when we cover nicknames. Uh, oh. For now, I, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta Come tease on, you John. a little bit. That seal's testicle is just sitting there, waiting for you to pick it up. And look, I gotta, I gotta leave it dangling for now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, All right. For the moment, Ilugi agrees to add Helgi seal's testicle to his crew for the following year, and that's about it. Okay, so end of interlude. Let's return to Thorgear. Part 15. Broken Shafts. Seals, testicles, and broken shafts. That's right. You know, I thought about putting these two sections together and giving it that exact title, and I decided it would just be, it would be a little raw. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, no, we're back to the main story now. 
Okay. Except that we're not, because now the saga introduces two new pairs of men. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first uh, are Kalf and uh, Stainolf, who are popular, young, and wealthy brothers from Garpstall. Oh, these two, yeah. Uh, young, popular, and wealthy. Please note mm-hmm. that intelligent and competent aren't among the adjectives the saga is deploying here. Yeah. Though they could uh, mention fodder. They could say fodder. They but could say that. That's neither neither here nor there. They're mostly background figures for the moment. Uh, they will appear uh, a little bit later. So maybe just stack them in your in mm-hmm. your mind. Kalf and Stainoff, wealthy brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're going to uh, they are going to travel with Thorgair uh, since they're also planning to be on Elugi's ship to the spring. So there's this this whole uh, section right. of the saga is just stacking up who's going up to the ship. Right, that ship's getting crowded. It is, yeah. Did we say that Thorgair is going to be on a Lugi ship as well? That's I, I don't important. think we did, but we can probably assume it, though. He's going to be on the ship, too. He's going to sail mm-hmm. on Ilugi's ship because he really does intend to return to King Olaf. That's the goal. Yeah. I'm going to get on the ship, and we're going to go back to Norway. Yeah. Definitely getting crowded on board. Uh, so, all right. That's uh, Kalf and Stanolf, two rich kids out to see the world. Mm-hmm. The the second new pairing is two foster brothers, Eolf of Olafstal and Thorgir Boundless. Another Thorgir, great. Yeah, great. it's going to be a little while before this pair shows up in the action, but when they do, we're just going to have to call this one Thorgir Boundless to keep the names clear. Uh, okay. These two are young and generally well-liked, but they're a little loud and overly energetic. Uh, mm-hmm. Eolf is known to be a bit rowdy, and Thorgir Boundless gets his nickname from constantly spending himself into debt. Nice. Yeah, they're also bad influences on each other. Uh, they, they cause trouble at Eolf's mom's farm on a regular basis, and one old servant in particular gets angry at them and prophecies that their friendship will one day turn to hate and tragedy. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. It's a prophecy, John. Eh, tomato, potato. So, all right. Spring rolls around. And virtually the entire male population of the district apparently lines up to board Elugi's ship. But not all at once. Thorgir is sent on ahead to the ship to make everything ready for this trip. So he takes Kalf and Stainolf of Garbstall and Helgi seals testicle with him, while Elugi and Thorgils and Thorgilson Ari all ride to conduct business at the Allthing and Thingfettler uh, with most of the remainder of the crew. Right, most of the rest, but not everyone though, because when Thorgir right. and friends arrive at the ship... They find Gout Slaterson there with a few other ship hands. Mm-hmm. Gout, remember, is the cousin of Thorgil's Marson who Thorgir killed. Yeah, which is why this is going to be a bit awkward. It's it's always so hard to know what to say when you meet a guy whose cousin you've killed. <laughs> well, actually, they don't say anything. The two of them just pretend not to notice each other, and they spend time with different groups of men. Even their meals, uh, those are being prepared separately over separate fires. So let's keep them apart. And the problem with that is it's a little bit wasteful because there isn't a lot of wood for fires in the area. Each group has to forage farther and farther daily for enough wood to cook their dinners. Mm -hmm. One day, while Thorger and his friends are out, Gout goes into Thorger's tent and grabs Thorger's spear and shield. He breaks (laughs) the point off the spear, tosses it onto Thorger's bedroll, and then breaks up the spear shaft and shield to make his fire. And, in a detail that I actually really appreciate, the author tells us that the wood was sufficient to cook a meal. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And, and that is, um, I think it's a deliberate provocation. Oh, you think? 
I think it is, yeah. Huh. Surprisingly, though, it, it doesn't seem to work. Thorgir realizes that his stuff is gone as soon as he gets back, and he says, Hmm. Who's taking my shield and spear? And Gout replies, I took your spear and your shield and broke them up for wood for the fire. We'd run out, couldn't finish our cooking. I don't like to eat my food raw. I could always tell a guy who's going to get killed by the voice you give him. (laughs) (laughs) It's a voice I wouldn't want to have to keep going for very long. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, then I would have thought Ale Scott the Grimson would have been killed in the second episode. Uh, Ale Scott the Grimson was a mistake I shan't repeat again. uh, (laughs) Doing a a year of... Uh, 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 griddly Tom, Tom Waits voice is gonna just is, yeah. I, I'm gonna feel that for the rest of my life well Thorgir confronts this pretty calmly he keeps a carefully blank expression and he doesn't act as though he's upset in any way which is yeah. which is I actually think, I, that's pretty remarkable restraint from Thorgir oh absolutely I absolutely. mean obviously he's gonna have to try to kill this guy but it's still pretty mm-hmm. impressive yeah he's maturing John yeah, you know time biting, with King Olaf He's biding his time. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Well, now that you mention it, there is an incident the next day. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Gout and his friends, they leave the site to forage a little bit. And Thorgir immediately goes and gets the spear and shield from Gout's tent and tosses it into his fire. Oh. And once again, it's enough to cook dinner. Gout returns a while later and says, does anyone happen to know where my spear and shield might have gone? Well, now, no, wait, well, no, I've just got, no, wait, no, 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 I've just got gone. Smart gone. Now, what? What? Now, now, here, now. come on now. Come Here's on now. Uh, <laughs> you, you might be, if you, if you don't know where your spear and shield are after you, you spend might be an Icelander looking for wood, you might be an Icelander. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I almost uh, spit my beer. <laughs> Here's so, your rune stick. Yeah. <laughs> Gout returns a while later and asks <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. <clears throat> so Gout returns a little while later and asks, Does anyone happen to know where my spear and shield might have gone? <laughs> well <clears throat> Well, I took your shield and your spear. Eat our fire. Whoa, wait, wait, what's going on there? What do you mean? Thorger's become Ronald Reagan now. Well, <laughs> I took your shield and spear to feed our fire. <laughs> I, well, I, I think you should know. I mean, there's there's a fine line between Ronald Reagan and Clint Eastwood. It's, a, it's not that fine of a line. <laughs> no? Okay. Well... <laughs> now when it's because it starts with well and that's that's the beginning of any well, Ronald Reagan impression. Well. Well, I took your shield and your spear and I used it to feed our fire. You see my cook was running out of firewood. You never tire of testing our patience, do you? Well, the run of the game is often decided by the first move. Right, and that that sounds like a pretty clear threat. So oh, Gout yeah, leaps yeah. forward and swings his axe at Thorgir. Thorgir is able to deflect the blow, but he does take a minor leg wound. And before anything else can happen, both groups of supporters jump on the two of them to stop the fight. You don't need to hold me back. I have no intention of making a fight out of this. Well, you can see why they'd be skeptical about that. I mean, yeah, but the thing is, Thorgir still hasn't made a violent move. He's just standing there calmly 
very, very calmly, he was attacked. Uh huh. So that's it. Uh, no more blows exchanged. And yeah. Thorgir doesn't even ask for compensation for the wound. No. Which suggests to us, or at least should suggest to us, although it apparently suggests nothing to Gout and his friends, it suggests that Thorgir intends to get payback in some other way. I mean, if you're Gout at this moment, you might want to pack your things and leave as quickly as possible. I mean, or at least try to finish the job you started. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't take long. Uh, that same night, as soon as everyone is in bed, Thorgair grabs his axe and he goes to Gout's tent. He wakes Gout, who leaps up and fumbles for a weapon, but Thorgair lands a decisive blow as he's awakening, and he buries his axe into Gout's head with enough force that it lodges in his ribcage. So, head, <laughs> head to ribcage, John. Is that is that what we're calling decisive? <laughs> Not a lot of ambiguity there, you know? Well, fair enough. <laughs> Fairly straightforward. Uh, so, Thorgair then walks calmly back to his tent while Gout's friends arrive and cover the body. Yeah. And you may not be surprised to learn that Thormod later writes a verse about Gout's death. No way. I mean, honestly, at this point, I wouldn't be shocked if Thormod wrote a verse immortalizing Thorgir's dental hygiene regimen. But still. <laughs> he starts with the incisors. <laughs> Gout, the sword-brave son of Slater, I know from life he banished. The bold-minded man, with his troops in the fray, the fated man was paid with groans in the howling of battle swords. He who does such deeds often reaps a just reward. Hmm. That one's interesting. There's no uh, no references to Thorgar as a mighty sailing man in that one. Nor as a skipper brave and sure. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I mean, maybe even Thormod has his limits of... Yeah. Besides, I mean, there's Enough. not a ton. Yeah, there's not a lot to celebrate here. I mean, uh, Gout and Thorgir burn each other's equipment, and then Gout gets split like cordwood. That's it. Yeah, it's a little bit generic. Uh, apart from actually naming Gout in the first line, there's not a lot that's specific to the story we've just told. It's it moves well, around it. Right. I mean, not every verse can be a winner. Uh, another thing that isn't mentioned here, by the way, is what Gout's friends do after taking care of his body. Well, they sort of fade away once Gout's dead. Yeah, I mean, everything about this Gout story seems pretty ephemeral. Uh, we had that brief introduction of Gout back at the beginning of the saga, but then nothing until now. And mm -hmm. then he dies after a brief and very much self-contained conflict with Thorgir. It yeah. feels like an anecdote that's inserted to explain one of Thormod's verses and to explain a couple of events that are coming up in the saga. Interesting, yeah. So the, the poetry seems to be, if we look at it that way, influencing the shape of the saga. Mm -hmm. which certainly that's a factor in a number of sagas that are built around a poet's output. Um, and it's something that we're going to need to keep an eye on in the later chapters here. Great. More homework. Well, more homework for you. Uh, but as a narrative <laughs> device, uh, this is an important moment because with Gout and his friends gone, there are fewer men waiting to board a Lugi ship than there would have been. So. Uh -huh. Yeah. And the other thing to pay attention to here is that Gout is from the same well-connected clan as his cousin Thorgils Marson. Which means that Thorgir is killed again in the same family that had him outlawed. Uh, you put those together, what we have is a man already under outlawry, who's killed twice in a powerful family, and has just lost some of the men who might have helped him in a fight. Yeah, I think the, the word you're looking for is ominous. Part 16. The Malicious Merchants. 
having dealt with his gout problem, Thorgir goes about his business caring for the ship at Kronholm. I've often yes. had a little problem with gout myself. Yes, well, what it's, you got to do a rich, is... It's a rich diet that gets me. You got to catch that rich diet when it's when you when it's sleeping, and you see, right. and you just nudge it awake, and you bury your axe in it, and that gout will go That's, away. Like like many of the Tudor monarchs, I find that I have a problem <laughs> with. Go on. Very good. Yes. So uh, Thorgir goes about his business caring for the ship at Hraunhalpen, uh, which is on the uh, Melrakasleta Peninsula. Uh, it's often called Sleta Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And he's waiting for Elugi to arrive from Thingvetler, which is pretty far away. And before long, he spots a merchant ship sailing into the harbor. And once it docks, he rows a small vessel over to investigate and find out who owns this ship. He's told the ship belongs to two men. Uh, the first is a Greenlander named Thorgrim Anderson, who's known as Thorgrim the Troll. Well, that's an ominous nickname. Uh, who's who's the other guy? It's a man from northern Iceland named Thorarin the Overbearing. Well, this uh, <laughs> Thorgrim the Troll and Thorarin the Overbearing sounds like a fun pair. Well, I mean, they're not unreasonable men, uh, mm-hmm. at least not in this encounter with Thorgir. They ask about Thorgir's ship and learn that it belongs to Ilugi Arison. Now, Thorgir is also interested in just how many men are on this ship. And when he finds out there's 40 men compared to the 30 on his own ship, well, suddenly he's very wary, uh, recognizing that any trouble between them might uh, might favor Thorgrim and Thorarin. And he it's says, It's almost like he shouldn't have chased off, say, 10 or 12 men who might have otherwise <laughs> supported the ship. Maybe, you know. Thorgir says, Men have said that we are both somewhat unfair and not unambitious. Let's not let our courage and tenacity turn to violence and strife. Let's Instead, not bicker I... and argue about who <laughs> killed who. Who will kill who? <laughs> no. Instead, I suggest we make a pact of peace between us. Is that, uh, is that your translation of the line? Yeah. Yeah, why did I, uh, I screw something up there? No, no, I actually like that you did that. Uh, the translation Ooh, by Martin Regal says something like, People say that both parties are troublemakers and not slow to take the offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you changed that to, what was it? Uh, it said somewhat unfair and not unambitious. Yeah. I think that captures the essence of it much better, really. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, what we have here is uh, another example of the term Oyavnadmadr. Right? We, uh, yeah. we talked about this way yeah. back with uh, Ramakosag. Or in this case, Oyavnadmadr Men. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we discussed this term a few times in the podcast, notably during that episode on Hravenkill, but also in Ale Saga. Uh, it's uh-huh. a word used for men who are, they're more than just troublemakers. Uh, yeah. Unfair is a pretty good description, I think. No, well, thanks. I, I thought so. I, I looked this up. I liked this line. I thought it was interesting. So I looked it up in the Icelandic and I was mm-hmm. really, I was pleasantly surprised to see Oyafnaðar men there and and i immediately understood the nuance of what thorgir was trying to say which i don't think the translation by regal really captures because oh you have other men they have a warped sense of their own self-worth right they place themselves above others they and they they feel really comfortable even justified working outside the confines of societal norms and expectations because well they think they're special Exactly. Uh, and that, that's why Hravenkill doesn't offer compensation. It's why mm-hmm. Ale can so confidently push back against royal authority. They're just above it all. Um, and uh, therefore, as you say, they're unfair in their dealings with others. Yeah. Which, um, if you've been following along, that's a fair description of Thorgir, honestly. Right. I mean, there's sort of two ways of thinking about Thorgir, right? I mean, he's unfair in the sense that he treats people badly. 
Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he is sort of, he treats everyone unbadly equally, if that makes any sense. Yeah, right? that's I mean, fair. There, there is a an even-handedness to his uneven-handedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think... He's equally you know, a bastard to everybody, regardless of their station. True. I mean, and that's true of, of Ale, and that's true of Ravenkel mm-hmm. as well. Um, but it's because of their own sense of the way things should be, which is organized right. around themselves. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's and, you know, a description like unfair and focused around yourself is probably applicable to men with nicknames like the troll and the overbearing as well. Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. Um, so so Thorgeir has taken the measure of these two men, uh, whether he knows their reputations or not. It's un- to, un- to me unclear. But he does realize that he needs to tread carefully if he wants to avoid trouble. Right. I mean, it's a cagey move. Right? We, we've seen how quickly things can turn when you get two ships in the same harbor led by men like this. Yeah. Uh, it often ends poorly. Unfortunately for Thorgrim, Thorgrim the Troll and Thrar and the Overbearing have a ship full of goods for a trip to Greenland, and they aren't keen to get into a pissing match just yet. Uh, mm-hmm. So they agree. Let's have no trouble between us. They make a pact of peace. Which is a relief, you know, because for a minute there, it felt like the author was building up some kind of tension, maybe, you know? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. No, no, no. They have a pact, John. It's peace. Yes, yes, yes. But remember how Thorgrim packs up the ship and anchors it farther away from the shore, right? Farther away from Thorgrim and Thorarin. I do. But, you know, I'm thinking as he's packing that ship and saying, hey, everybody, get on this ship. We're going to move it out farther Mm -hmm. away from shore. He's just being cautious, just in case. Well, he is, and rightly so. Uh, don't forget the pact is followed immediately in the text with a piece of Thormod's famous poem about his oh. sworn brother. Okay. Seeing he had no choice with fewer men, Thorgir in his wisdom demanded a truce of the gold trees. That brave man was quick to believe all the words of those who gave their pledges of peace. While they plotted against him. Hmm. Yeah, Thormod is right, more or less. Although uh, I, less, I like to think I like to think that they intended to keep the peace when they initially swore the pledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but of course, not long after Thorgir departs back to his own ship to move it out a little farther from shore, Thorgrim the troll is visited by a group of men, who quickly tell him all about Thorgir's recent encounter. With gout. Right. And if that weren't enough to give Thorgrim some pause about his pact with Thorgir, it turns out that gout was actually a kinsman of Thorar in the Overbearing. Uh-oh. I mean, this Which whole means, thing just... Right. Hmm. Yeah. And Thorarin now wonders aloud whether Thorgrim might be willing to avenge gout's death. But the pact, John. What about the pact? They have a pact! Well, as far as Thorgir knows, they do. But mm. Thorgrim and Thorarin now have other plans. Mm. In fact, Thorarin has what one might call a cunning plan. Ooh, you know I love cunning plans. I know you do, and this one's pretty decent. He says, We'll choose a day to, car- to carry all of our fine clothes, linens, and other valuables ashore, and spread them out to dry. If we're lucky, some of Thorgir's men will come ashore to admire them, and then we'll kill them. This should reduce his numbers. Give us the advantage. It's another voice of uh, a person who sounds like they're about to die, John. Yeah, well, except um, this guy's a little bit different. Well, he's just not going to be in the way. saga for very long. <laughs> Either way, it's not a bad idea. 
Uh, they already outnumber Thorgear, something like 40 to 30, according to at least the initial report. Mm-hmm. Uh, knocking off a few more men than ambushing Thorgear, that could be exactly what they need to ensure a victory. But let's be realistic here. Thorgear is one of the protagonists of this saga. He's a sworn brother. This is all just a setup for a heroic stand. So uh, let's get on with it. You can dispense of this uh, weird voice you've chosen. Very get quick. rid of all this setup and nonsense. All this uh-huh. narrative and literature. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, so sticking to the plan, they they wait for a clear day and then carry, I don't know how many days these guys are just sitting around watching each other across the bay. Well, Elugi's at uh, Thingvetler and yeah, they're no, waiting know, for I him know. to arrive. It's I'm talking about the other ship. The other ship that's sitting around doing nothing. I mean, it's got a, it's got a full of cargo bound for Greenland. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so uh, they just wait for a clear day and they carry all their goods ashore and lay it all out to dry and you know, maybe attract the eye of a few men from Thorger's crew. Uh, and that same day, 12 of Thorger's crew are on shore to collect drinking water for the ship. And among nice them detail. are Kalf and Stanulf, the wealthy brothers from Garpstal. There they and are. And of course, and yes, and also with them is the fleet-footed Helgi Salsesta, seal's testicle. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, they do spot all that beautiful cargo laid out along the shore. And three of the men decide to go and check it out. Uh, these are unnamed men, probably wearing red shirts. Uh, they're killed as soon as they arrive. Um, <laughs> the text isn't clear on how the ambush plays out, but eventually Thorgrim and Thororin, they end up chasing down and capturing both Kalf and Stainolf, and they bind them in fetters, and they kill three other men by the water. Oops. That's, uh, so what, six men so far? Yeah. And Thorgair, meanwhile, has no idea that this is happening. Oh, none at all. No, he's back on board the ship, which is still being kept at a distance from the shore to avoid any immediate problems with Thorgrim and Thorarit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that's working. No, it's not. Uh, and he, he can't see the shoreline because there's a hill blocking the view between the ship and the watering place on shore. And making matters worse, none of the men who'd gone ashore are able to get back in the boat and row out to warn him. Like I said, six of them are already dead, and Kalf and Steinolf are in fetters. And uh, what about uh, old Helgi? How's old Sealball doing? Old Sealball. <laughs> I yes. don't think there's a way to make this nickname more unpleasant, but you've managed it. You're uh, Well, uh, Helgi managed to kill one of the ambushers, so that's Good nice. for him. Nicely uh, done. But rather than find his way back to the ship and warn the others, he flees the scene as fast as his fleet feet can carry him. Of course um, he does. And as the saga tells it, he ran day and night across the highlands and did not stop until he came to the old thing at Thingvetler, where he told Thorgils and Ulugi what had happened at the harbor at Hraunopen. <laughs> All right, so he runs from Hraunopen on the uh, Melrakslaita Peninsula all the way down to Thingvetler. Is that what we're supposed to believe that, here? That's what it says. Yeah, so uh, John, did you, uh, I don't, you don't usually do this, so I'm going to ask anyway. Did you uh, take a look at the map? And see where all of this is? <laughs> you see what kind of distance Helgi might have covered? Uh, no, I, I didn't. But I, I know it's up in the north. And that alone yeah. tells me that it's not going to be anywhere near Thingvetler. Well, I mean, you're right about that. Uh, but Hronhopen, uh, it's not just in the north, John. It's it's about as far to the northeast as you can get from Thingvetler. I mean, we're talking about going over the highlands, as the saga says. That would have taken... Something close to, I don't know, 550 kilometers, around 340 miles. That's a pretty good jog. I mean, it's a marathon. 
Uh, even well, my horse. It's a lot of marathons. It's about. It's, it's many, many, it's close many to marathons. marathons. It's an ultra marathon. Even by yeah. horse, this is a journey that would take a minimum of three to four days, and that is on a fit horse willing to push across the difficult terrain that they would encounter. And Helgi's running. And, and go ahead. Let, let's assume that he's in great shape. Let's assume he's a quick runner, as he says. He told Elugi, right, that I'm a, I'm a great runner. Let's assume he can run 50 miles before hitting the wall. Mm-hmm. He's still got to do that consistently across six to seven days. Oh, wait, what wall? It said he didn't stop running until he got to Thingvetler. Yeah, it, that's what it there's, says. There's no wall here. Are you are you <laughs> saying, Andy, are you suggesting that mm-hmm. the flight of the seal ball might be a bit far-fetched? <laughs> flight of the seal ball. No, <laughs> not not necessarily. A person could certainly run from Hraunhoppen to Thingvetler if they wanted to. It's mm-hmm. just a question of how long it would take and what value it might have in an emergency like the one Thorgir is about to find himself in. I see. Yeah. I don't think the cavalry will be riding in before Thorgrim and Thorarin get to Thorgir. Uh, <laughs> absolutely not. He ran in the wrong direction. But uh, again, if you want to talk about a person who is well-trained, a person who's in great shape, as Helgi no doubt is, People can run incredibly long distances. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to – I looked into this because I was curious. I'm going to give you two extreme examples of what humans are capable of. Wait, just just generally? This is not saga related? This is just humans in general? Modern humans. But modern humans oh. are worse than, than ancient and medieval humans in some ways <laughs> in terms of fitness and running distances and things like that. Mm-hmm. Bunch of bunch of fat sloppy losers. That's what modern people are. <laughs> That's, That's what you're right. getting at. That's, That's what, what we are. Well, have you seen pictures of us, John? I sadly I have. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm looking at you right now, and frankly, it's no uh, it's no treat. I mean, if I've got to if I've got to go over that hill over there, it's going to be in trouble. <laughs> Just to wave at Thorgear, like, hey, whoo, something <laughs> happened. But I, whoo, hang on, <laughs> I got to take my heart pill. <laughs> Anyway, uh, okay, first... So what are these people examples? That, people that are much better than us. Uh, first, you have Dean Karnazis, an ultra-marathon runner. He ran 350 miles in just under 81 hours without sleeping. And he did this in uh, 2005. Wait, 350 miles in 81 hours? Yeah, just under 81 hours, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, it's like 6.8 miles, 6.7-something miles, something like that, for 81 hours. That's insane. I mean, it's, you know, that doesn't sound that bad until you get to about hour 20. <laughs> uh, Run for an hour, John. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Uh, I mean, it, uh, but I guess that means Helgi can make it across that distance in the same time it take a horse. According to that, yeah. And, uh, and then there's Cliff Young. He was an Australian potato farmer and a super runner. In 1983, mm-hmm. back when you were just in your early 20s, he ran. Wow. How dare you? <laughs> no, I just get just a joke. In 1983, he ran 544 miles. That's 875 kilometers in a little more than five days. Mm-hmm. And that is significantly farther than Helgi had to travel to get the Thingvetler. So, again, Helgi could reasonably, if he's in great running shape as he claims to be, he could make the legendary run that cemented his name in the annals of Icelandic history. It's possible. I- as if that nickname wasn't enough. Exactly. Uh, anyway, I, I'm not saying it happened, John. I'm I just saying <laughs> it could have happened. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. And I like to think that it did, if only because I want Iceland to start up an annual ultra marathon from Hraunhafnatangi to Thingvetter, and I want it to be called the Seal Ball Run. The Seal Ball Run, absolutely. I, I'm envisioning T-shirts with, say, uh, Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise. No. Maybe no, you can't. No, that's that's too dated, but. <laughs> I think what you can do is put together a nice design and then the slogan is, I survived the seal ball run and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Something like that. Oh, I see. I see. Not that you've been thinking this through or anything. No. Uh, so, so I'm assuming this is meant to be a prompt for our artist friends out there. Uh, imagine the money you could be coining with a cool seal ball run t-shirt design. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say maybe with uh, Burt Reynolds and Don DeLuise. No, no. But... Apparently, I was in my early 20s, 1983, so maybe my references are a little out of date. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. But, yeah, you look, if you're if you're someone who likes the art, maybe you're a graphic designer, maybe you like silk screening, <laughs> if you get on the ball now, you can beat out the competition. You could, I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, I said you could beat out the competition. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, nice swerve at the end there. You saved it. Thank you. I tried. Part 17. The Heart of Thorgir. Okay, enough about running. Let's uh, let's finish this ambush. Right. Yes, I guess we should get back. Yeah, as long as we're here. Enough about the seal's testicle. So, Thorgrim and Thorarin have killed six. They've captured Kalf and Stainolf. They have chased off Helgi. Now, I'm not sure where the rest of the away team ended up, but uh, they have abandoned their boat and left it on the shore. Yeah, Thorgrim the Troll takes possession of the boat and fills it with some hale and hearty fighters. With uh, Thorarin piloting the main ship and another group of men in the third vessel, they ambush Thorgir. And at this time, now, Thorgir is on his ship with only eight other men. I don't know where the rest of them have gotten to, but there's only eight with him. Terribly outnumbered, but they, they make a brave stand as attackers pour over the gunwale from every side. A hard battle ensues, with Thorgir wielding his axe bravely in the face of what is rapidly becoming insurmountable odds. And before long, all of Thorgir's men are killed, or at least out of the action, and he stands alone but firm. He runs back to the prow and defends himself there, parrying blows, landing them where he can. So I think we should let Thormod Colburn's poet tell the rest. This hardy ruler of riches made his stand on the stream deer's prow, and fought two score men mightily, famed for his strength since a youth. Before the battle tree was laid low on his ship with no small show of valor, wounds were dealt for sure. Thorgir taught how a fighter must stand fast by his kinsman's side, boisterous though it be to follow such a man. From the north came news of the spreader of the Hand Rock. I heard how Thorgir's heart was brave beyond compare. I heard how he who gave the hawk its prey was never dismayed by the bandiers of bickering swords. Mar was one, and Thorir, whom the nimble-tongued one slew. I learned that this came about after their truce was broken. Unflinching, the warrior dealt death by sword before he fell to thirteen men, himself a mighty guardian of ships. 
Here I end the tally of foes that he slew with bold deeds. Now my tripping verse draws to its close. Mm-hmm. Well done there, Thormod. I mean, say we're finally will, done with his verses. Well, I think we are done with his verses. He yeah, just said, much. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's done talking about Thorger anyway. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Well, you know, say what you will about Thorger. He does stage one of the more heroic final stands that we've seen in uh, the many sagas we've read as he fends off 40 attackers on his own. Mm-hmm. One of, not the, but one of the more heroic ones. One of the better ones. The saga, yeah. The saga says that no man was known to have put up such a fight. Yeah, but it's his and saga. That it, it would say that. Well, he didn't write it. Um, <laughs> it also notes it was the Almighty who touched Thorger's heart and put such fearlessness into his breast. Uh-huh. Thus, his courage was neither inborn nor of humankind, but came from the Creator on high. Yeah, okay, see that? I get it. I mean, obviously this author really wants to um, Christianize elements of this poem wherever he can. I mean, Thormod, yeah, but this God, guy? is going to... Right, but, but that, I mean, there's this kind of an implication here, right? God yeah. himself, the Christian God, is then responsible for all those deaths. Yes, and made made Thorgeir brave uh, to the point that he's killing men who are bending down in such a way that make them attractive to right in half. Right, they stood, like, stood poised th- for the blow. This is God's chosen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an it's it's an odd thing to say. Um, I it, it, it's an interesting addition by the saga author. Whatever you want to do with it, but there least. you go. Yeah, the saga fleshes out uh, the death of Thorgeir just a little more for us, which I think is nice. Um, mm-hmm. In the same way that Snorri fleshes out the poetic Edda into the prose Edda um, in a way that's more accessible. Um, he, the saga says that Thorgeir was first wounded by Mar, who is a Norwegian that managed to cut Thorgeir's hand, but Thorgeir soon after kills Mar. Then mm-hmm. another man, the one called Thorir in the poem, plunges his spear through Thorgeir. But Thorgeir, even though he's got a spear riding through his gut, uh, he closes the gap and finishes him too. And then with that spear still in him, he he turns to fight Thorgrim, the troll, and Thorarin, the overbearing. They double-team Thorgeir, and they finally overcome him. And then Thorarin, the overbearing, kinsman of gout, and the instigator of this attack, cuts off Thorgeir's head and carries it away. And they're not done just yet. Uh, according to some people, or so the saga says, Thorgrim and Thorarin were so impressed by Thorgrim's courage that they sliced his chest open to get a look at his heart. Mm-hmm. What they found was a heart several sizes too small. Just like the Grinch. Or or was it the Grunch? I can't either remember. way. Either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll just quote the saga here for the significance of this discovery. Some hold it true that a brave man's heart is smaller than that of a coward, for a small heart has less blood than a large one, and therefore is less prone to fear. If a man's heart sinks in his breast and fails him, they say it is because his heart's blood and his heart have become afraid. Hmm. Yeah, I found I found this part particularly interesting. And according to this bit of folk wisdom, it seems like the size of a man's heart is directly related to his courageousness. Correct. Is that right? 
Does that mean the Grinch is really brave? I, I mean, look, He's he does infiltrate heart. the homes. I mean, he infiltrates the homes of all the Who's in Whoville on Christmas Eve. He makes he off does. with everything they've got. I'm not saying it's a laudable activity, but that kind of thievery isn't for the faint-hearted, Andy. Or, or the big-hearted in this well, case. Certainly not. Last thing you want in yeah. that situation is a big, sloppy, jiggly heart full of blood. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, so I, I looked into this uh, curious little detail a bit because I couldn't help myself. Um, I didn't find <laughs> much until I stumbled upon a book called A History of the Heart by Ola M. Hustad. Uh, it's translated by uh, John Irons from the Norwegian. And as the title suggests, it's a pretty ambitious project that examines the heart as a symbol for what it means to be human. Mm. Uh, and he covers everything from Gilgamesh to Foucault's history of sexuality in this book. It's pretty incredible. That is a lot. That's a lot of history to cover. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. I'm assuming, since you're bringing it up here, that he covers sagas, or at least medieval Scandinavia. Well, I mean, he does, and he's Norwegian, so right. yeah, I assume he would be run out of town if he didn't <laughs> mention wow. Norwegian or Icelandic you know, stuff in there. As a as a pair of Americans who sit here talking about non-American literature and probably wouldn't know Twain if he walked up and slapped us in the face with a glove, uh, I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a fair statement. Uh, Twain, did he write uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin? Was that the one? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uncle Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uncle, that's, I should have done that. That would have been my, way better. <laughs> Very clever. Anyway. Yeah, no, John and I don't really study American literature. Um, except for, you know, modern. I'll do modern. Kurt Vonnegut, let's go. Sure. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he does cover Norway and Norwegian stuff. He's got a chapter called Norwegian Anthropology in which he covers all kinds of saga literature and mythology and stuff like that. And uh, he actually touches on this moment from the Fossbrother saga. And he suggests that this heart ideal is actually more reminiscent of Egypt than of Europe, which I think is pretty mm. fascinating. And while there aren't many examples out there of this kind of dissection that reveals small hearts... He does point out a few examples that seem to support this notion that the harder a person's heart is, the more brave they are. So not hard-hearted the way we would use it as an English phrase, as in cruel or mm -hmm. cold. No, no. Hard as in strong, hard as in dense, mm -hmm. not jiggly. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples he offers is Helgi Hundingsban, uh, who's described as having a bone-hard heart within his breasts as he enters battle. He cannot that be... That seems like it would be fatal. Well, it does, but uh, his heart doesn't jiggle, and that's why he's so brave. Um, right. And within the metaphor, at least, and perhaps within the medieval Scandinavian sense of physiology, maybe, I don't know, the anatomical composition of the heart is an indicator of a person's capacity for courage. Interesting. I'm glad you brought this up. It actually helps me to make sense of that scene in the saga of the Volsungs. Uh, mm, the yes. scene when Gunnar asks King Otli yep. to prove that his brother Hogni is dead. Remember, he, he demands to see Hogni's heart, and then Otli's men bring him the heart of a slave instead. That's right, they do. And the reason is because they don't want Hogni dead just yet because they need to find out the location of the gold. Right, exactly. And and Gunnar sees the heart they bring him and knows that it isn't Hogni's heart because it's trembling. Right? It's, it's trembling. It's, it's jiggling a bit. Uh, and he mm -hmm. says that a trembling heart trembled in a coward's chest. That's right. Well, I mean, you're so good with memory. Um, and yeah, if this odd scene with Thorgir's dissection 
if we go back to that, represents something of their system of belief, then the coward's heart trembles because it's engorged with blood. It's bigger and engorged. No, no, I don't. I don't like it when you say engorged. Uh, it's full of blood. It's and one of my least favorite words. Uh, but yes, uh, when they go back to cut out Hogney's actual heart, uh, they find that Hogney is so manly that he laughs while they cut his chest open. Yes, right. He's, he's exhibiting that kind of that demonstrative sort of performance of bravery and courage shown mm-hmm. in the physical characteristics of the heart when it's removed from his chest. Uh, and right. Gunnar then says something about it moving very little. That scene's a great one to illustrate this, I think. And it, it's not in the book, but I think it would be a better illustration than some of the things that he does choose. What we see here is a heart that is hard and relatively still because it's dense. It is mm-hmm. the heart of an extraordinarily brave man. That's right. Uh, I always had a jail. rough sense of what was going on in that scene just because trembling is, you know, characteristic of a coward in general. Yeah. yeah. But the, the Thorger scene combined with Heistad's studies suggest a deeper cultural correlation, right? Uh, There's a correlation there between bravery and the physical characteristics of the heart. Uh, It's not just about character. It's about about your body. It's about physiology. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there is one more cool example that he offers if you're interested. I don't know if you want to delve into this a little further. Am I going to be able to use this in my teaching or is this just a a little anecdote for us? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you can. Eh, Then go ahead. I mean, you definitely teach this um, okay, so Hoist said uh, he talks about the Eddic story of Thor's fight with the giant Hrungnir, which I mm-hmm. think you'll remember. Sure, of course. Yeah, that, that one's about a heart, too. It is, yeah. And as you well know, uh, but for our dear listeners, it is a story about a giant named Hrungnir who uh, works his way into the hall of the Azir and um, he overstays his welcome. And Thor's kind of upset about all of this. And so he ends up challenging Thor to a duel, but only back home in Jotunheim. And Hungner is well-known among the giants for his bravery, and he's also famous for his remarkable heart, which, John, it's made of, do you remember what it's made of? Well, it's made of stone, but that's not surprising. He's a, he's a giant. Uh, it's made but of yeah, stone. His, hard. His, his brave heart is stone hard. It, it's not mm-hmm. small, though. It's just huge. No, that's, that's fair. And I honestly, I didn't find any evidence of the whole small heart thing. Only thing mm-hmm. I found was evidence of hard hearts. Physically right. hard so, hearts. So, yeah, so we're we're meant to understand. I mean, I suppose we can think of this as a heart defect or something uh, that Thorgrim and Thororin just conflated with that hard heart idea. Or the author of the saga, maybe. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, but, but going back to... Or, uh, or, or they're just making stuff up. You know what? It never occurred to me that this also work of fiction, <laughs> this work of fiction might be making stuff up. Could no, be. No, no, it's could all... Be. It's, it's all hard facts as far as I know. Sure, fair enough. <laughs> Hard-hearted facts. But anyway, going back to Hrungnir, uh, the other giants decide that they don't want to lose him because they, you know, Thor has a reputation for winning these fights. And they yes. predict that's what will happen. Yes, it's what Thor does. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the giants fashion a gigantic man from clay to fight with Hrungnir and mm-hmm. hopefully overpower Thor. And he's literally a mountain of a man, and he looks like a real killing machine, but there's there's just one problem. He doesn't have a heart. He doesn't have a heart. And he has no and way of getting giants, to and he has no way of getting to the Emerald City to ask for one. He can't no. No. They they look everywhere for an appropriate heart that and they're looking for one that's big enough is is one of the things that distinguish it from Thorgair, but Mm-hmm. They look everywhere and they can't find a heart that will work for this clay giant until 
they find a mare's heart. And the mare's heart is just right and it uh, works. It's, I don't know if it's just right. It works until Thor well, arrives. It stimulates life in this clay figure. Yeah. Is yeah. what it does. But uh, yeah. As soon as Thor arrives, the clay giant uh, freaks out and wets himself. Mm-hmm. And his large, blood-filled, wobbly heart begins quivering. And the clay giant proves to be more of a coward than a hero, collapsing in fear at the mere sight of Thor. But, see, if we think of a mare's heart or a horse's heart compared to a human's, there's a significant size difference. True. Uh, but, of course, I mean, this is a mountain, right? A mare's heart and a mountain. I mean, the, the point of that story, isn't it, that, that, that the heart isn't enough to actually do anything in that massive body? True. Um, I guess that's so one way of looking at it. I guess we have to think about it in terms of this has to be thought about in terms of a comparison with a human heart rather than a comparison with an appropriately sized heart for this massive giant's giant. True, true. But it's um, a human putting the story together and thinking about course, what a mare's yeah, yeah, heart yeah. is compared to a human's heart. Right. And I think that size difference could be significant, I guess. Right. So if we so if we take that caveat, then you know, the larger size heart, the mare's heart rather than a human's comes with uh, more blood, or it pumps more blood, with a lot more potential for quivering, for, for, for jiggling and squiggling. Uh, <laughs> is that the logic? Yeah. I guess, I guess so. Uh, and again, this isn't terribly well developed in the, in the book, but it's there. Um, and I have to admit, John, I have not had the opportunity in my life to play with a fresh mare's heart. Aw, that's a shame. What about a human heart? You ever... Uh... You ever Kalima shocked a day a human sacrifice? Maybe a, maybe an enemy of yours? <laughs> good, good. Yes, I, I like that. I appreciate that. Uh, but I can't say that I have. I have not uh, uh, Kalima shocked a day's. Uh, no, I've never done it. Uh, but there's time. I have yeah. opportunity. You're, you're still a young life man. ahead of me. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, what I'm trying to say here is that I cannot say with any accuracy that a mare's heart is any more quivery than an average human's heart. Yeah, there's a there's um, a disturbing master's thesis for somebody out there. The, there, the, there you go. Looking the, for a project? The, the relative plasticity of various mammal hearts. <laughs> That's right. Who's and it's bravest? Like their likelihood to contain bravery. Right. Or or with humans, you know, you, you just take a bunch of humans with different reputations for sure. bravery or cowardice <laughs> and get access to their hearts. Yeah, I, I don't think this is going to get us arrested at all. It's a, it's a fine interdisciplinary project to pursue. Yes, yes. Uh, interdisciplinary. If you're into that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in the realm of mythology, I think that that's what we're meant to understand. I think that right. this idea of right. the size of the heart, the jiggliness of the heart is right. uh, related to the, the bravery. So Thor must have a tiny, tiny little rock heart. <laughs> it's very interesting. I, I like this. I, I think it works. Um, it might need some more development, maybe, uh, you know, a few dozen more hearts, uh, cut out of living monsters, uh, sure, sure. but it works. It works. Well, uh, go ahead and contact Dr. Hoisted. Uh, I, I think he's, uh, from what I could tell, he's a professor emeritus at the university of Southeastern Norway. Um, uh, all right. Fair enough. Well, that was a fun digression. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, uh, let's bring it home, Andy. Um, you mentioned that Thorar and the Overbearing cut off Thorger's head uh, before. Oh, we're they... talking about the saga of the Sworn Brothers. I forgot. Yes, about yes, that. way back when, a few a few hours uh-huh. ago, uh, we we left okay. off having just killed one of our major protagonists, and now we've kind of wandered yes, away we did. for ten minutes. Uh, so 
Thorar and the overbearing cut off Thorger's head before they opened up his chest and checked out his innards. That is what happened, yes. And he is, uh, Thororin is so pleased with himself, so sure that his great victory will bring him honor throughout Iceland, that he actually breaks off his partnership with Thorgrim the Troll, takes control of the property, Thorgrim takes the ship, and he rides southwards with Thorgir's head hanging from his saddle like Geralt of Rivia with an Earth Elemental trophy. That is a reference I don't get. Well, well... Let's move on. Whenever he and his men uh, stop to rest, they amuse themselves by taking Thorgir's head out of the bag, and they place it on a nearby mount, and they ridicule and laugh at it. That is... wow. You know, there are times when I really appreciate the invention of things like radio and television. That is a... <laughs> that is a rough way to spend an evening. A little harsh, too. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and, you know, they do this night after night as they travel south, bragging everywhere they go about their victory over Thorgir. Uh, but by the time they make it to Eyjafjörður, which is just a little over 200 kilometers, 130 miles or so, around that time, the head yeah, starts to lose its luster. A little, more, a little more than a third of a seal's testicle. <laughs> a journey, journey. Not a, a seal's testicle itself is quite small. Yes, a journey. But you're talking about a you're talking about the 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 seal ball run. Right, exactly the seal ball run. <laughs> yes, yes. They uh they they stop at uh, Naust, which is a farm near the base of Eyjafjörður, and they place the head on a mound for ridicule as they normally do. But by this point, the head no longer seems quite so humorous to them because. Now these ghastly eyes and this open mouth with its tongue hanging out in the most terrible way, this this sight of this head, it fills them with fear and trepidation. And so Ugh. they decide that they've had enough of this head and they dig a hole nearby with their axes. They dump the head in and they cover it with turf. Who would have thought that uh, several days later, a severed head would start to become unsettling? <laughs> I mean, it's not part of my experience either. Oh my lord! So um, I can't say. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great final detail. Uh, it's a, it it's is. a last laugh for Thorgir. Right? Uh, even in his death, he has the power to strike fear into his enemies. Yeah, yeah, that I think is the point there. So good, uh, Thorgir yep. is out of the saga. There you go. Uh, you know, Andy, in about a uh, nineteen years ago now, I was traveling in Ireland, uh, and I spent an evening in a bar in Slane. Uh, with two men named Mick and Declan, uh, and if there, if 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 by any chance anyone ever hears this, please know I really enjoyed myself that evening, guys. Thanks very much. Uh, but uh, late in the evening, uh, Declan tried to convince me to travel to the next town over and see an old saint's relic that was in a nearby church. It was a severed head of a local saint. Oh um, yeah. And he said, you know, yeah, and they've got the you know the skulls in a reliquary. It's in like a head shaped uh, reliquary. I said, wow, really? He said, yeah, yeah. yeah. I said, oh, what is it? What does it look like? He said, well. I wouldn't kiss it, but for his age, he looks pretty good. <laughs> Fantastic! Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Uh, so yeah, that's the end of uh, that's the end of Thor here. Uh, mm-hmm. So with that, I guess we're bringing this episode to a close. Uh, but uh, don't worry, we'll be back soon with another thrilling episode where we will see how Thormod Colburn's poet handles the news of his sworn brother's death. Yes, uh, but, spoiler: uh, he he's not happy. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Uh, 
but before we go, let's uh, dive into the rune sack. Uh, we've been talking for a little while, so let's just do one today. It's from an old friend, Patricia Gonzalez. Oh, great. That'll be fun. Hi, Patricia. Yes, it's always good to hear from our friend Patricia. Um, if you're new to the podcast and you've been jumping around randomly through our episodes, uh, we interviewed Patricia and Stephen Fox about archery in the Middle Ages back in 2018, ages ago. Um, I believe it was Saga Brief 13 or 14, uh, but whichever brief it was, we had a great time. We both got very jealous of all that Patricia and Stephen have accomplished in their lives. Very yeah. cool stuff. Yeah, got jealous, continue to be jealous. Uh, mm-hmm. So what did Patricia have to say? Okay, well, she writes... Hello, gentlemen. As our Viking camp is now up and running for the fourth year, my staff have been, of course, listening to the podcast. Thank you (laughs) so much, Patricia. It's so good to have promoters like you out there. Um, As we were listening to Saga Brief 17, Vinland Vikings and the New World, I was again reminded of the Vinberry mystery. Mm. As I've been making and experimenting with beer, ale, porters, meads, making uh, these things since 2020, I suddenly had... An epiphany when Andy or John, I'm going to guess it's John here, explained the translation as wineberry creepers or wineberries. Now, Newfoundland has two species of juniper, one creeping and one standing. And juniper has a long history of uses in Scandinavian and Finland. Mm-hmm. I have made beer and ale with it combined with fir or blue, spru- blue spruce or ginger. Ooh. And I've been attempting, I'll be attempting mead next. Oh, this sounds so, lovely. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I know. It, is it possible or legal, Patricia, that you could maybe send some of that uh, good, good stuff from the Viking camp at uh, Lycopus Archery in Vancouver, maybe down to Mississippi, perhaps? Whoa, 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 whoa wait. Oh, to Mississippi. Uh, how yeah. about to Massachusetts? That's also good. Eh, whatever. Uh, Mississippi would be better because, um, mm-hmm. you know, things are looser down here. Sure. And sure, we're not afraid. We're not afraid. But we should be. Uh, Anyway, so John, this (laughs) is more of an observation uh, from Patricia, uh, an attempt maybe to make us both thirsty. But uh, do you have any thoughts on these berries? Um, Well, okay. So, yeah, Patricia, hi. Uh, I think there might be an episode back somewhere in the archives where I I talked about the berries of Newfoundland. Uh, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not convinced by the connection of Vinland to wild grapes. Uh, I'm pretty certain that a Northern European in the 11th century would have had a much broader outlook on what might be con- turned into alcohol than we would expect. Uh, yeah. The the Swedish tradition of berry and backyard herb wines is one example of that, right? Uh, the use of juniper in Northern uh, alcohol making is another. Uh, I actually think it's quite unlikely that any of the crew members of those Viking ships would think to define berry or winemaking fruit as being only or necessarily wild grape. Uh, and of course, the saga gets written down at a much later period, right? uh, but people are drinking fruit-derived alcohol in the north throughout the period, uh, and certainly berry and herb-derived alcohols as well. Uh, in any case, the authors of the sagas aren't necessarily clear about exactly what's being described in these stories. Uh, it's always been my suspicion that the ambiguity of the saga's language may reflect an uncertainty about details in a story that was already hundreds of years old when it was written down in its surviving form. Hmm. Uh, So juniper and uh, the various ground berries that are all over uh, Newfoundland are certainly very, very possible as 
uh, as substitutes, right? That the the reference may be not to a specific fruit or a specific berry, but rather to the abundance of fruits and berries that were available for the taking. Mm. Uh, but obviously, um, I mean, that's all speculation. To be absolutely sure about my theory, I'm going to need to extensively sample the wine you've been making uh, for, <laughs> for research purposes. I think so. Yeah. Lovely, uh, lovely, lovely. Uh, me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. By the way, uh, uh, Patricia and Andy, uh, I have some experience with this myself. Uh, in, in my younger in my younger days, uh, when I was a camp counselor in uh, in upstate New York, oh, I learned I learned to make what we at the time called prison yard wine in old <laughs> jelly jars from any fruit we had laying around. <laughs> any juniper uh, berries in there? I mean, we well, we didn't have juniper berries at the time, but. Um, you just found any kind of, you know, any berries you could find, any herbs, that kind of thing. You just throw them in there. Yeah. Um, it, so the process, much like a Viking, you you see a berry, you scoop it up and ferment it. Absolutely. No, I, you know, you're looking at uh, Türker in uh, in the Greenlander saga, right? I, I feel a great deal of sympathy for Türker, uh, who wanders <laughs> off in the woods and drinks something he's been distilling uh, out in the forest. I... I've been there. I've literally been out in the woods and distilling random things for alcohol. Uh, uh, distilling involves well, no, not the distilling. Drip, drip yes, process. yes, yes. Yeah, fair enough. Fair that. enough. Uh, fermenting, fermenting, ferment. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, the the process is it, to ferment uh, berries or any kind of sort of uh, bush berry into alcohol is simple and fairly quick. Uh, I won't describe the process in detail in the interest of protecting miners and people who are live in places where this is illegal. Um, but I will tell you, it doesn't need any fancy equipment or sterilization or anything like that. There are a total of four ingredients and two of them are water and fruit. There you uh, go. The, the best results we got actually came from bush berries and ground berries, uh, just like <laughs> the ones that carpet the ground around Lonsa Meadow and that grow all over Newfoundland. So Patricia... Go. I'm I'm sold. I I buy it. Uh, but as okay. I say, to be absolutely positive, I'm going to need a sample. <laughs> now, out of curiosity, John, um, uh, you're you're trying to protect minors, but this isn't 19th century England. Uh, minors have to be adults, don't they? <laughs> That's terrible. As even for, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Oh, well, I, I'm pleased by it. All right, oh, with that, uh, we're going to bring the episode to a conclusion. Uh, thank you, Patricia, for your question. Sam, uh, I plan to ask your Green Knight question tonight, but uh, we ran out of time because we're both long-winded idiots. Um, but we will get it. <laughs> we'll get to it next time. Um, well, I, we have things to say. We do. Um, I want to uh, go ahead and thank our resident illustrator, Jacob Faust, for his contributions. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, he has given us another dynamic action scene capturing the chaos of Thorgar's last stand. Uh, go ahead and take a moment and show your appreciation for his work by liking and following him on Instagram where he's Scarpathan underscore illustrator. Um, he also just sent me today, just before we started recording, John, um, a picture of Thorgir's decapitated head. Um, I'll post that oh. on social media uh, oh after this episode goes up. I don't want to put it with the episode because it'll spoil some things, uh, uh -huh. but I'll post it after the episode goes up. Uh, speaking of our social media, how would people find us if they wanted to share... Uh, their thoughts on the episode or ask a question or complain about images of severed heads or talk about the seal <laughs> ball run. 
the seal ball run. Well, that's easy. You can email us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook or Instagram where we are sagathingpodcast. And we are also on Twitter at sagathingpod. Right. Or if you prefer something a little more subtle, maybe you travel up to Lacopus Archery in Vancouver, uh, hang out with Patricia, get some of that yummy homebrew, and then drive... Uh, I'm assuming legally across the border to sure, why not? Uh, say uh, the charming town of Bridgewater, Massachusetts, or maybe hmm. uh, stormy Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, what, what, and, what? 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 Well, uh, you know, we I mean, we we haven't really discussed it, Andy, but you're you're sitting in the outskirts of Hurricane Ida as we record this. Uh, yeah, but uh, it's usually sunny, so come to sunny old Oxford. Well, well, I wouldn't come during hurricane season. Uh, in any case, wherever you go, bring those goods with you. Uh, and you can ask your question in person while you're tippling out a little drink for us. That sounds like a pleasant thing to do. I really like that idea. Uh, that's that's one of your best yet, John. Hey, I mean, they get something, we get something. Everybody wins. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. All right, uh, we will be back soon with another section of the Saga of the Sworn Brothers. Now with less brothers. <laughs> oh, and by soon we don't mean three to four weeks from now uh, or maybe we do I don't know uh, school's just starting here I might get caught in the undertow <laughs> well let's hope that doesn't happen but if it does I'm sure I can find a good replacement oh gee thanks until then thanks for listening everybody bye for now By the way, do you know what Helen Helen Hardy is an example of uh, uh, linguistic duality? Oh yeah, uh, it's we get, we get a lot of these in English. It comes from the uh, Anglo-Norman period, uh, really? where in legalese they would they would do this, where they started writing these uh, binaries in order to use the Anglo-Saxon and Norman words for things, so as oh, to make the well, law clear to both sides. So like law and order, um, yeah, Hale and Hardy are examples of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, they're they're it's using words from both languages that it's clear no matter what your ba- your background is what the law is saying. Well, there thank you, you for that lesson. There I it appreciate is. it.